Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you again this morning thanking you for your word, that in it we do not find puzzles to be put together, but plain speech that gives us truth to live by. We ask that this morning your truth would dig deeply into our hearts and our minds, and that we would be a people who receives truth with glad hearts. That where we are out of step with it, we would repent. Where we are discouraged, that we would be encouraged and emboldened by your truth. Lord, may your spirit be here and active this morning as we gather in your name to declare your greatness and to hear your word preached. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So this week is uh, our last week looking at the uh, Christian view of government. And if you've been here with us, as most of you have been, uh, from the beginning of Christ Bible Church, you know this type of a series is not what we normally do. We don't normally look at uh, issues and trace them across the canon. But I have done that for this series for one particular reason, and we have done it for a few other issues. It's because when we preach verse by verse through the Bible, which I do think is the main diet a church should have, sometimes we lose the forest through the trees. And one of the issues we've had with that, specifically around the idea of government, is you can take one text, absolutize it, and ignore everything else the Bible has to say on the topic. That is poor preaching, poor exegesis. But the Bible does, is meant to be read in such a way as that you see whatever text you're dealing with in light of everything. You can call that many different things. Uh, I think the, the clearest term to call it would be systematic theology. But I remember uh, one of my professors in seminary talked about this idea with every text, that there are, there are three horizons of every text, that you have to understand it on three different levels. There's the immediate context, which we generally do a pretty a good job with. And then there's also the covenantal. These aren't the terms he used. He used terms that I, I just don't really think make a whole lot of sense, so I changed them. But he's not here. It's okay. So there's the covenantal kind of te- text. It's like, where are we in this, the covenant development of the storyline of Scripture? Where are we up to that point? Genesis 1 is in a different location than John 1, in other words. You have to understand where you are. And then the last one is you have to understand this text in light of everything the entire grand story of Scripture. And that's what we've tried to do with these different texts today. And so we are in the series. And so we've deliberately built a Christ, the Christian view of government. And as we've done that, we've been in the Old Testament, we've been in the New Testament, we've been in Revelation, uh, we've been in the Gospels, we've been uh, just about everywhere. And that's intentional. And I hope you're starting to see that the Bible does speak in unified voice on this topic. And there's these reoccurring themes throughout Old and New Testament, Old and New Covenant. The first is this, that the state is not God. And because the state is not God, it is limited. Its authority is not unchecked. It does not have the right to do whatever it wants, whenever it wants to do it. God is God and Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And if we're going to talk about governmental or political formulation, who's at the top has to enter into the discussion. We've also seen the idea of sphere sovereignty, that God has established many different spheres of authority. The individual, the home, the church, and the state. All of those spheres have their own legitimacy given to them by God and their own limitations given 
by God. We have seen that the government throughout Scripture and history is often corrupted and used by Satan to oppose God and his people. And so the Bible offers a a remarkably balanced view of government. Government is appointed by God for your good. But man corrupts what God intends for good. It is God's servant, the government, but it is not our Savior. We cannot look to salvation from this realm of life. And so the resounding theme that underlines all of this is the sovereignty of God as expressed through Jesus Christ as the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and thus the inherent limitations on all authority, especially the state. The Christian view of government is this, in one word, limited. The government is limited. It should therefore be checked and balanced. It should recognize its rightful master, its rightful role, and its rightful scope. And we have seen the ideal for this form of government, and we have seen it in Scripture, and we also realize that that's not how it often plays out. The Christian is not here to try to bring a utopia through the realm of government or man in any way, shape, or form, because we cannot. And though while we can see the ideal in Scripture rather clearly, it is still something that we have to recognize we will never reach until Christ returns. But it is something we can strive to get closer to. There's a lot of similarities between individual sanctification, that you as an individual should be growing in holiness, all the while realizing you will never reach perfection until Christ comes back. That only gets amplified when you put a bunch of sinners together in a community, in a nation. And so we've seen the ideal. And in seeing that, I think we can rightly say that we are presently very far from that ideal. We have an ever-increasing state. We have many people eager to treat the state as their savior. We have many people who are eager to treat the state as their God, as their father. You fill in the blank. And we also have an ever-increasing hostility in certain quarters of our society towards God and towards his people. And some of those quarters are elected officials. And so the natural question comes, in light of all of that, all of the failings and the biblical ideal, how should you and I live? What do we do in the interim? How do we live in an age where we know that Christ is currently King of Kings, but his kingdom is not yet fully here among us? How do we live when the evil often seems to be winning, often seems much stronger than the good? How do we live knowing that even though our government is far from perfect today, that there are still many things about it for which we should be grateful? It could be a lot worse, and often has been throughout history. How do we live today? And that is the reason why I've picked to end this series where we are ending it. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4 offers us a path forward. We see the desire that we should have for the government to do its job, which is basically to leave us alone. And we see the theme of limited government. And we see that our desire is that the church should be left alone to work out the gospel so that we can live quiet lives that serve God. So that's what we're going to spend our time looking at this morning. The first thing that we should do, knowing what God wants and desires for the government, 
and knowing that we do not presently have it is the first thing you should be doing in just about all of your Christian life. And that is to pray. What should you be doing? What can you do to look the darkness in the eye and to say, I don't like that, I'd like something different? Well, the first thing you should do is to pray to the one who is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Contrary to our society that views prayer as a meaningless and powerless gesture, Christians know that it is one of the most important and one of the most powerful things you can do. Why? Because it is direct access to the one who is almighty. The one who rules over everything. It really is our most powerful weapon. And yes, sometimes people do just throw prayer out there in a meaningless way as an excuse to do nothing else. I get that. But let us not overcorrect by ignoring what the Bible plainly tells us to do. Consider again verses 1 through 2. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Paul here is mainly speaking about, to Timothy, the idea of corporate prayer during the corporate worship service on Sunday mornings, as it were. But this principle can also and should extend to your private prayer life. First of all, of primary importance, Paul says, is the command to pray for all people. Now, of course, he does not mean every single person that currently exists in the world by name. You cannot pray for all 8 billion people that currently inhabit the earth. But the all used here, as it often is throughout the New Testament, is a reference to all types of people. As you live your life, you're going to encounter people of all different varieties and all different types of positions. And the primary example of the types of people that Paul gives here is for kings and all who are in high positions. Primary importance, Paul wants us to pray corporately for our governing authorities. This is a matter of great importance. And if I'm going to be honest with you this morning, which is my default, how do we really do with that? And how often do we really pray for our governing authorities? Even here at Christ Bible Church, praying for our political leaders during corporate worship has not taken the significance uh, that Paul says it should here. And that largely falls on me because I'm the one up here praying most of the time. I need to do better. This should be a regular part of our corporate prayer. Not because we are political. We'll, we'll dive into this more later on. But it is a command, right, in black and white in Scripture. Of primary importance, pray for your leaders. And we should understand this command in the context of the first century church. The ruling authorities were mostly, at this point in time, evil, corrupt, and an enemy of the church. This will be elaborated more and more as we go on throughout the passage, but you should hear an echo here of Christ's words from the Sermon on the Mount. He said, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In opposing the evil of our day, we must pray for those who are doing the evil. We cannot lose this gospel bent in our prayer. All are saved by grace through faith. 
And it is good for us to pray that God would do the same for those who persecute us as he has done for us, even though they may hate us. If that had not happened, the Apostle Paul would not have been converted. If that would not have happened, the persecutor of the church then would not have transformed the church as he did. If that would not have happened, we would not have the Bible that you have in front of you where so many of the letters are written by someone who is in a position of authority, who used his authority to persecute the church. We are a people of both grace and truth, and we have to hold on to both of those equally. Biblically speaking, I think there are at least three different ways that we can and should pray for our leaders. And specifically for leaders who are less than righteous, those who are wicked. The first is this. The first way we should pray for such leaders is that we pray that they may repent of their evil ways and turn to Christ in a saving faith. Throughout the book of Acts, Paul is constantly arrested or apprehended and brought before rulers to explain himself. And in classic Pauline way, as he is being put on trial to explain himself, he flips the script and he actually puts the governing official on trial before God. He says, actually, you need to be behaving this way, and this is what the gospel says to you, so you should probably repent. And this often makes the governing authorities very queasy and and uneasy, for Paul had a way of uh, turning the whole trial uh, on its head, as it were. Paul would explain their sin, he would explain the work in the person of Christ, and he would call them to repentance. More often than not, this did not result in a conversion from the ruling authorities. And yet Paul kept doing it. Though as we read the New Testament, realize that many people in the courts of these governing officials did hear that, were struck by it, and repented and believed, even up to the house of Caesar. This is one way we should pray for our leaders, that they would see their evil, they would see their wickedness, that they would repent and be forgiven. Second way you can pray for an evil or wicked ruler, is you should pray that whether they are Christian or not, that these leaders would still govern with righteousness for the good of the people. And especially here in view of 1 Timothy 2 is for the good of the church. That we should pray that those who occupy high positions, even when they're occupied by evil, wicked sinners, that they would fulfill the proper role and scope of government. Even if they are not converted, that when they would try to do evil, God would thwart their plans to do evil, hem them in, and hopefully fulfill the God-appointed role of government. To punish evildoers and to protect the rights of the people. This is not, and we must stress this, to pray this way is not a form of idolatry. To pray and to work for righteousness in your community and in your nation is not a form of worshiping your nation, or your community. In fact, it's commanded right here in 1 Timothy 2. The third way you can pray for your leaders, and this is probably the most controversial for modern Christians, is that we could pray that God would judge the wicked rulers and replace them with better ones. Listen to these words from Psalm 109, a prayer of David. And even as I say that, it's a prayer of David inspired by the Holy Spirit, that is, the words of God, given to his people. Be not silent, O God of my praise. 
For the wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appointed wick, appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few, and may another take his office. David prays for the judgment of God to fall upon this ruling official because of the evil and the wickedness he has done. And David does this inspired by the Holy Spirit. Recorded for centuries so that you and I might have it as an example for us. Now, of course, some will say, but Levi, that's the Old Testament. We're not in the Old Testament anymore. And Jesus' Sermon on the Mount supersedes this command. That's an argument you will often hear. My response to that is, well, first, such an understanding of the relationship between the Old and New Covenant is deeply troubling. You cannot sever them in such a way. We should always avoid pitting Scripture against itself. God is neither schizophrenic nor is he divided in what he views as righteous between the Old and the New Covenant. And of course, if you read the New Testament, you will find the same things that you find in Psalm 109. Paul cites these types of psalms, they're called imprecatory psalms, in the book of Romans. He cites them against his enemies. We are told in Romans chapter 12, not to take vengeance for ourselves, but rather to trust that God will take vengeance on our behalf. Praying that God would do that would seem to fall in line with Romans 12, which last I checked is in the New Testament. Praying for that to happen is not less than holy. Then you have the example of the saints in the throne room of God in Revelation chapter 6. They are literally in the presence of God, pictured here under his altar, and what do they have to say to the Lord? They say this about what's going on on earth. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now many modern evangelicals would probably expect God to rebuke them at this point. You can't say that in my presence. But God's response is to reward these saints by clothing them in white, and then he breaks the sixth, or has the sixth seal broken, and he pours out his judgment on the nations. And so, yes, you can pray to ask God to avenge and to judge. Do you need to be careful when you do that so that you're not motivated by sinful bitterness or unholy hatred and anger? Yes, you do need to be careful of that. Just like if you're praying for the blessing of God's enemies that would fall on them, that you are not praying that from a position of allegiance with the world. Or that you somehow think that you can out-holy God by downplaying his righteous judgment. Here they are, God-given words to us to say you can do this, and some Christians think they're more holy than God in Scripture. That is something I can't get behind. The arrogance there is rather shocking. And so my recommendation to you is that in your prayer life for our leaders, that you would employ all three types of prayer I just covered here. And you can even do that, all three types, for the same person. You can pray for their conversion. You can pray that God would hem them in and despite themselves that they would be wise rulers. And you can even pray for their judgment and their replacement. 
And then no matter how God answers your prayers, you are called to be content in his righteousness, his wisdom, and his providence. Be happy however God limits and thwarts the evil of wicked rulers. Whether he does that through granting repentance, through restraining their evil, or by bringing judgment upon them. Praise the Lord no matter what. If you'd be offended that God would give grace to your enemy, then you do not grasp the weight of your own sin and offense before God. I'll say that again. If you'd be offended that God would give grace to your enemy, then you do not grasp the weight of your own sin before God and the gospel message. Also, if you'd be offended by God judging your enemy, then you do not understand the weight of your sin and the glory of God in the gospel. Paul then moves on to tell us what the goal of this prayer is. And in this, I think, I believe, we see the proper relationship between the church and the state, again, assumed. Look at verse 2 again. You're doing this prayer that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We pray, in essence, that the government would leave us alone that we would be left alone to go about living our Christian lives and the church would then continue her mission undeterred by the state. In other words, we are praying that Caesar keeps to what is his and keeps his hands off what is not his. This was not an abstract prayer for the first century church. This was life or death for them. This is life or death for many of our brothers and sisters around the world right now. They pray that they would be left alone. That they could live quietly and peacefully. That the beast and his corruption of the state would be kept far from them. And that God would protect his people. Sometimes well-meaning Christian leaders will say that persecution is good for the church. And they will imply that if you pray or work against persecution coming for the church, that you are somehow working against God or doing something less than holy. And yet here we have it commanded to us right here in Scripture. We can be sure that God does say, again, Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, that when you are persecuted for his sake, God will bless you. He uses persecution to bless. He can use evil to bring about good. But here we are commanded to pray that these things might not happen, that you might be left alone. And so there is a godly way to do just that. And so we pray that the government should do its job as God defines it and that it should do it well and that it should execute God's judgment on this earth, on the evildoer, that it will be a stabilizing force in society, that it will protect the rights of its people and that it will promote righteousness in its laws. And again, we see that biblical view of government. Limited. It has a role given by God and we hope that it does just that. Now in our form of government, we can add this to how we should live. We need good Christians to enter into this realm of life and to bring this vision of government into the governing processes of our nation. How do they do that? By making sure that the government remains limited to its proper scope and function, that it will leave individuals in the church and Christians alone. While politics is certainly a dirty business, we need more, not less, Christian engagement of it. We need more godly men and women involved. 
not less. Again, this is one reason why Paul tries to convert the governing authorities. So that the church would be left in peace. Praying for our leaders and doing so in hopes of a quiet life does not mean that Christians should keep their hands off of this realm of life. I will often, during the legislative season, I will often go and visit the state capitol with the Minnesota Family Council, and we will go around and we will pray with and for our leaders, no matter what letter is next to their name. And we often, when we enter into their offices, we point to 1 Timothy 2. Why are you guys here? Why are you here not asking anything from us? Well, because God tells us to come. God tells us to pray for you. And as I've walked those halls, I'm I'm often struck by, well, two things. One side of the aisle, I find a lot of people who are very quick to tell me, I grew up Christian. I grew up, I'm not Christian anymore, but I, I grew up in the church. And the other side of the aisle, I'm struck by how many still professing Christians there are but their pastors want nothing to do with actually shepherding them through how do I be a faithful Christian in this realm of life. That is not the way it should be. As we pray for our leaders, as we pray to have quiet lives in our relationship with the government, we pray this way because we know that sometimes life is not that easy. In other words, Paul instructs the church to pray this way because Sometimes it's not that way. There are times in history where the state is abusive and intrusive into the church. And the implication of this, cha- this text is that there are times when faithfulness will mean that you will not, as a Christian, be living a quiet, peaceful life in relationship to the state. Right? If that's the way it, it has to be, you're, you're not necessarily going to be asking God to provide that for you. In other words, There are times where sticking your head in the sand in times of calamity cannot be excused by pointing to 1 Timothy 2. There are times where godliness will ask you to be loud and unpeaceful with the government. And if you will go back throughout the series, we've highlighted some of those times in Scripture and in church history. Our desire is for peace, but there's also a sin where you say peace, peace, where there is no peace. And you must not fall into that. So Paul puts a bow on all of this for us in verses 3 and 4. Really the end goal of this prayer for these quiet and peaceful lives is that this would be used in such a way as to take over the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Consider verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is pleasing to God and it is inherently good and it is connected to God's desire and plan to save all types of people through the declaration of the gospel. You praying for your leaders to leave you alone. You praying that the state would do its job and not anything more than that. That the state would not interfere with Christians in the church is pleasing to God and is connected to his plan of reaching the entire world. In other words, this is kind of important. It's not outside of God's plan and it's not outside of the interests of the church. So let's consider this for a moment. When the, when the state leaves the church alone, 
when it is primary or properly limited, the gospel flourishes. The church flourishes. And I think you can see the receipts of that throughout world history. Well, the West has done many things wrong, has done many sins. It did not always get the separation of church and state right. It has still done the best job in world history of keeping the church and the state separate in the biblical sense of the word. If you consider the history of the church in the West, the West was not really the West until it was Christianized. Whether you talk about the pagan Greeks and Romans, the pagan Anglo-Saxons, the pagan Germanic tribes, they were all ungodly, and they all had the same basic view of reality that was largely indistinguishable, except for they had different names for their gods. But underlying, it was all the same. That's why the term pagan and heathen was used throughout Scripture. In God's providential plan, the gospel spread mostly in the Middle East, northern Africa, and then up into Europe in the Middle East and northern Africa was lost to the invasion of the Muslims. And the pagans of Europe were converted and Christianity became the dominant view in what we now call the West. And it is largely the Christian influence that distinguishes the rest from everyone else. That does not mean everyone in the West is Christian, but it does mean that Christianity had a unique influence there. And this also does not mean that the West was sinless. They weren't, and they aren't. And it is not to say that the Europeans were inherently better or more righteous, or that their own ethnicity made them somehow better than everyone else. A thousand times no. The gospel says the exact opposite. The gospel saves those who are unworthy, not those who are worthy. But in the current rage to destroy the West, we are often only told of the evils of the West. But here's the truth. The failures of the West, whether it be slavery, whether it be racism, whether it be the unholy marriage of the church and the state, were not unique to the West. Doesn't excuse their sin, but it does transform the argument that these things were uniquely found in the West somehow. World history tells you, no, 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 those were pretty common. Everyone did it. Every major civilization did it. And in fact, if you compare the West to the other global dominating civilizations, the West was far more tame than Rome or Greece or anybody like that. But what is unique about the West is how the Christian worldview took root and transformed sinful people and transformed sinful culture degree by degree. And thus we get things like human rights, Equality before the law, limited government, a rational world, and the modern scientific revolution, and so much more. Not because Westerners were better, but because Christianity took hold. And to that end, as limited government took hold, and Western nations slowly tried to implement these ends, what happened in the church cannot be ignored. What happened is the greatest missionary movement ever. As the state left the church alone, the gospel spread to the ends of the earth. Men, women, and children sacrificed everything they had, left their family and friends and their lands and their jobs behind to go to foreign lands to preach the gospel to people who looked entirely different from them and who thought about the world entirely different from them. Did these missionaries always do so perfectly? No. But this was largely unheard of in world history. Most often in world history, religions spread like Islam did by the sword. 
not through preaching the gospel to those who are culturally and ethnically different from you. And thus, as the church was left to do her work, the gospel went into the world and conquered. This pleases God. This is part of what it means to be Christian. This is one of the great things from the Western tradition. I point this out because I was listening to a talk this week, a talk by a bunch of Christians, uh, about missions. And the person spent most of his time uh, railing against so-called white Western Christianity. Oh boy, does he hate white Christian, uh, or white Western Christianity. He had, could not spare his breath from just about any attack upon it. And yet he was totally, totally oblivious that his destruction of Western white Christianity, white Westernism as he put it, was a postmodern deconstruction of it. And, and that is, if you know anything about postmodernism, thoroughly white and European of him. The key difference is, is the Western minds that he was trying to undermine were Christians, and the Western minds he was using were those who were openly anti-Christian. But man, their skin was just as pale as mine is. Men like Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Derrida, Foucault, Marcuse, the list could go on and on. You won't find anybody more white or more European than that, but you've got no problem with their views. And so you have so-called Christians attacking the Christian tradition of the West, labeling it as white, and it is most definitely not white. All the while, they are employing other white Western thinkers, but the anti-Christian ones. The ignorance is alarming, especially if you have the letters PhD next to your name. You should know better than that. And one such speaker in attacking Western missions pointed out that now there are more Christians outside of the West than within it. And so the white Christians in the West need to shut up and listen. And what purely escaped his mind is, how did all of these non-white people hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? Who gave up their lives to do that? Oh yeah, those evil white men that you hate so much. That's right, Western churches and Western missionaries started the modern uh, mission movement, and it has been a success. And we rejoice that there are now more Christians outside of the West than inside of it. Not because we like to see declining Western Christians, but because we don't care about the color of your skin. Stop making it the main thing. And so Paul reminds us of this truth. As we've seen in world history, when the government is properly limited... The church flourishes and the gospel goes forward in power. We've seen it again and again, and Lord willing, we will see it happen even more. And it displays the compelling interest the church has in working towards the limitation of the government so that the gospel will go forward in power. And so we should pray and work toward that end. So how then do we live? Well, brothers and sisters, we are not utopians. We do not demand perfection or nothing. In all of life, if you demand perfection or nothing, you will surely get nothing. Christ alone is our perfection. So don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Christ and Christ alone will usher in the paradise we all long for. And we pray that that day would come soon, but we know it will not come through the arm of the state. 
Nonetheless, the call is for us to pursue as best as possible as the circumstances around us allow the biblical ideals of government, one that is limited, one that is in submission to God, one that punishes evil and protects good, which means it has to know what is evil and what is good, and that we should also recognize that we have inherited many things in our own tradition that we should be exceedingly grateful for. We do not live in a perfect government. But man, those who founded our government put a lot of roadblocks in to prevent this from going off the rails too quickly. And for that, you should be exceedingly thankful. And thus, as we work for reformation, we are not working for a revolution. Reformation returns to the ideals and the standards that we are currently not living up to. Revolution seeks to cast those ideals out as if they are the problem. We should be the first to admit that America and the West has not always lived up to those ideals. That many times we have fallen woefully short. That we did not measure up to them in our history and we do not measure up to them now. And we will never fully live up to them. But let me state this clearly. The problem is us. The problem is not the ideals. The problem is you and me are sinners. And when you get a whole group of sinners together, the sin multiplies. The problem, though, is not the ideals set forth in Scripture. And we have to state that and understand that because there are those who want to get rid of the ideals that we find in Scripture for government, saying that they are the problem. But brothers and sisters, if you even just consider this for a moment, those political movements that have replaced those Western Christian ideas of government with something else, like Marxism, have been far worse. Have been far worse. Marxism, contrary to what you've been told, has been lived out and tried consistently. And it always ends in the same spot. Millions dead. Poverty for everyone. Except for those at the top. And so, we recognize that while man will never be perfect, the ideals given to us are things that we should pursue. They are good, and they should not be are replaced. Brothers and sisters, seek to live quiet and peaceful lives as much as this age allows you to do so. Do so by praying for and working towards the biblical vision of government. Do this in service to Christ, the King of Kings. This is pleasing to God, and this helps the church achieve her mission to reach the nations for Christ. Do all of this in a quiet confidence in the surety of a faith that knows that Christ is indeed King of kings and Lord of lords, knowing that he will indeed win, that his kingdom, though not here fully, is coming, and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So live quiet, prayerful lives, work towards limited government, preach the gospel, and await the kingdom of Christ in hope. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it, you speak plainly to us. Lord, may we neither view the realm of government as totally unholy and unimportant, and may we neither view it as our salvation. Help us to bring all of Christ into all of life. And Lord, as you have commanded, we pray for our leaders. We are deeply thankful 
for the ways in which our, govern, our governing structures reflect the ideals you have set forth in Scripture. We confess that we often fall short of that, but Lord, we are thankful that righteousness is often still found in our governing documents and in the execution of, just, of justice on this earth. But Lord, we are also deeply concerned for there is much lies out there. There are many who seek to undo that righteousness and there are many who thinly veil their great hatred for you and your people who would love nothing more but to seize power and to do the work of the evil one. Lord, we ask that you would bring hearts of flesh into those hearts of stone. That like Paul riding on the road to Damascus, that you would change their lives. But Lord, if that not be your will, we ask that you would hem them in and thwart their evil plans, frustrate them, replace them with another. And Lord, if their evil rises before you, if the stench of it comes before you, Lord, we ask that you would judge it, that you would wipe it out, and that we would see your holy righteousness and we would rejoice in that all the more. Lord, we ask all these things knowing that Christ is indeed the King of Kings. We ask that his kingdom would come to this earth and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.